Good morning. It's amazing, you know, I, I came up here about two minutes before the service started and I looked out and I thought, where is everyone? I thought we must have a really fit congregation because they're all out running Norwich this morning. And um, now I, I stand here and I think, oh, it was just that Baptist thing of arriving bang on time for the service. But bless you, it's great to have people here. Special welcome, I'd like to add my welcome to Steve's welcome to those who haven't been here before. And... Um, it's, it's wonderful to be here together to worship God and to share in what he has to say to us this morning. Now, some of you may have noticed, um, I hope some of you noticed, um, I wasn't here last week. Last week I was off doing um, an event called the XCC. There we go, the Extreme Character Challenge. And there's a bit of a clue in the name. It wasn't easy, but I'll tell you what, it was brilliant. Um, this morning, this morning I was on my way to church and um, uh, it was Run Norwich and there was all these, loads more people about than normal. There's all these people in, in lycra and running shorts and all the rest of it and they were making their way somewhere in the direction of the centre of the city. And um, I took my mind back, I was thinking, what was I doing this time last week? And this time last week, I, for the um, best part of three days, have been deprived of some of the most, most basic, um, basic elements that we normally take for granted in life. So I'd been deprived of a watch. For three days, I hadn't known what the time was. And I'm not always the best of timekeepers, but believe it or not, I do, I do like to know what the time is and to know what's going on. And I've suddenly this week had a new appreciation for, for time and just being able just to check what the time is. And it, it struck me as ironic this morning as I was, um, I, I sort of came around the corner onto, um, onto Duke Street and, and speeding towards me, almost not quite knocking me over, but I had to run my way across the road, um, was this car going a lot faster than it should have been. And it was the car with the massive big electronic clock on the top. And I thought, how ironic that, that of, all, of all the people that are running late this morning, it's the person with the biggest clock in Norwich. Oh dear, oh dear, I hope they got there on time, otherwise it could cause a bit of an issue in the event. But last weekend, I was doing this, it was in the Brecon Beacons, the Extreme Character Challenge, and it was, there was a, a, a 130, 140 men who had all gone there, and we were all, we had to give in our phones, our watches, we weren't allowed to know what, what the time was, what was going on in the world, we had to focus simply and purely upon what we were told to be doing, the tasks that were set before us. Some really struggled with that, some found that really, really difficult. But right at the start, on the Thursday night when we'd first got there and we'd met people and I can't, I can't say too much, I can't say too much and I'll come on to that, but right at the start we had a pep talk and part of that talk was warning us, this is going to be a difficult weekend. There will be times when you're wet, when it's dark, when you're cold, when you're hungry, when you're feeling really disconcerted and things aren't, things aren't comfortable. This is not going to be a comfortable weekend. But trust the process. And that was one of the, one of the overriding strap lines of the weekend. Trust the process. We were putting ourselves into, into the hands of people that we'd never met before. And we were being asked to trust them. To trust the process. We threw ourselves into the unknown. 
We did not have a clue. From the moment we, we, we locked the car and walked away, didn't know what was going on, didn't know what to expect. And so when someone says, trust the process, what they're saying is, is, is let somebody else worry about things for you. Just do what you're told. Sometimes in life, the unknown can be terrifying. I've seen um, a look of, of terror um, at the end of a meal when we've been to someone's house on, on my wife's face, when they say, would you like any more? Or are you saving room for dessert? And I know she's suddenly in this, this quandary when she's thinking, well, actually, I would like some more because that was really good, but I don't know what, what's for... I've got to trust the process. I don't know what's for dessert because if that's, if that's average, then I'm going to really regret not having a second portion. But if it's really good and I have a second portion, I'm not going to be able to have seconds of that. And, and it's, it's, a real, it's a real dilemma. <clears throat> she's giving me that look, so I'll move on. <laughs> See, sometimes... In life, the unknown takes a fairly trivial outlook. It's a fairly trivial thing, like not knowing what's for dessert. But there are other times in life where trusting the process is an incredibly difficult thing to do. The unknown is incredibly difficult to see because we think we know what's going on. We think we know what an outcome of any given set of circumstances will be. And this morning, we're going to have a look at a passage from John. John 11, verses 1 to 44. And it's, this, is, this passage is so often referred to as the death of Lazarus. But I can't think of a, a less appropriate title for this passage. This is not about the death of Lazarus. The whole point of this passage is that it is not about death. But I've gone with it because every, every Bible I've, I opened on my shelf, the title, if it had a title of this section, was The Death of Lazarus. So I thought, well, I can't rename it. Who am I to rename a passage of Scripture? But I just wanted to be clear, this is not about death. This is a story of hope, of joy, of faith, and maybe above all, in this case, of trust. The death of Lazarus. Now this is a a long passage, but it's not a passage that we can, it's not a passage that we can, we can easily miss bits out of. It's not a passage that we can just skip through. Because in this passage, we see possibly the greatest miracle Jesus ever performed. Jesus is confronted by, we might say if we're describing him in Marvel comic terms, Jesus is confronted with his nemesis, death. Jesus has to overcome death. Not for, the first, not for the last time, but perhaps for the first. So we're told that a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. We, we, we looked at her some, some weeks ago, earlier in the summer, the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. Now, let's just take a look at a map. It's not such a big map, apologies for that, but um, it's the best one I could find. So, oh, I can't, okay. 
I don't know if you can see, um, there's a red dot on an arrow pointing at Jericho. The big blue bit in the middle, that's the Dead Sea. And you can see Judea towards the south, Galilee up in the north, and Samaria sort of in the, in the middle between the two. Now, Jesus at this point was traveling around the region near Bethabara, around here. And Bethany, where Lazarus is laying sick, is here, just near Jerusalem. Now, this posed a bit of a problem. This posed a problem. Two problems, in fact. First of all, the road between Jericho and Jerusalem, the road which Jesus would have traveled to get back to Bethany, was dangerous. This was the road, we believe, where the story of the Good Samaritan was set. The road which was known for bandits to be hanging out. It was a dangerous journey. But Jesus was there with his 12 disciples and they'd travelled the road before, but it wasn't a a route they would have taken easily. Added to that, the last time Jesus was in Judea, he had been chased out of town. People had tried to stone him to death. His teaching had been so challenging that he'd made himself almost unpopular to the point people wanted to, to stone him to death. And so... The disciples are quite surprised at Jesus. When he hears that Lazarus is sick, Jesus says, firstly, he says a promise. Jesus, when he makes promises, he's not one to break promises. So it's always good to stop when we see Jesus Jesus coming out with a definitive statement. And here he comes out with a definitive statement. So first of all, he says, this sickness will not end in death. This sickness will not end in death. It's a big claim. It's a big statement. Now we know from other examples in Scripture, Jesus can heal from afar. He can can pray and say to someone, go home. Your daughter's healed. Just like that. But in this instance, Jesus doesn't do that. Instead, He says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Let's travel back to the place we've come from, the place that we had to leave because they were trying to to, to kill us. Let's go back there. The disciples say, Rabbi, a short while ago, the Jews there tried to stone you, and yet you're going back. You're you're mad. You're absolutely mad. This, this This is crazy. They would have been frightened. They'd seen the the angry mob, they'd seen the rocks, they'd seen the danger. Jesus insists. He says, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm, I'm going there to wake him up. He's trying to be gentle. We don't, we don't like talking about death, do we? We don't like saying he's dead. We sort of say he's, he, he's passed on, he's fallen asleep. And so the disciples don't quite get it. Lord, if, if he sleeps, he'll, he'll get better. Sleep is probably the best thing for him if he's not very well. You know, let him rest, he'll be okay. So Jesus tells them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe. 
but let us go to him. So in other words, Jesus is saying, you know, this is, this is a good thing because you're about to see something that finally is going to help you to trust the process that I'm teaching you. It's just finally going to show you just who I am, the power that I have, a power that, that no man can, can claim to have. It can only come from God, the giver of life. Jesus sees opportunity in this, this terrible circumstance. He's, one of his closest friends has just died, someone who we're told Jesus loves. Jesus holds not just Lazarus, but his two sisters in really close, close affection. He loves them. It's bizarre to say, I'm glad I wasn't there to save him, because now he's dead, I can teach you something. But this is what Jesus does. He was always, always taking these awful situations and finding ways to teach people, to show the love and the power of God. And then Thomas finally says, when Jesus has insisted on going to Judea, and they see they're not going to change his mind, Thomas says, let us all go, that we may die with him. Now, there's two schools of thought on this. Some people say that actually doubting Thomas is shown in a very different light here. That actually this is him saying to the disciples, stop questioning Jesus, let's all go. And if he dies, we die too. We're in this together. Other people, other, other commentators say this is, this is sort of biblical sarcasm. Thomas is saying, yeah, great idea, Jesus. Yeah, let's go back to Judea. Yeah, tell you what, we'll all go. We'll all die together. Why not? Nothing else to do today. Be a laugh. No one's quite sure, and we'll never know. But, but it's interesting. It certainly provokes a response. The disciples, despite having seen Jesus performing healings and miracles, hearing his teachings, following him, giving up their, 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 their livelihoods to be with him, there was still that fear, that doubt. And we see that in ourselves, don't we? No matter how, how long we've been following Jesus, no matter how strong our faith, there are always situations that come out of the blue that we did not see coming and that we allow them to shake us, to shake our faith. When we feel shaken to our very core and we think, oh, this, this situation is awful, I... Church has nothing to offer. God has nothing to offer. I need to, I, I need to address this situation. And we can very quickly allow the, the size of the situation to, to be blown up so much bigger than, than our faith. And we realize afterwards as we reflect, I didn't, I didn't have the faith to cope with that. But we get through it because God teaches us, because, because Jesus hasn't stopped teaching in the world. And we look back and we see, wow, my faith, I thought it was, I thought it was yay big, but actually it wasn't. But now I've come through that situation. Now, now I understand more about Jesus. And this is a situation the disciples go into. They are called by Jesus here to trust the process. And I can tell you last, last weekend, last weekend on the, the extreme character challenge, trekking through the Brecon beacons, there were times where I didn't have much faith in the process, to be honest. There were times where I thought, well, I don't know where the next checkpoint is. I don't know if I can get through. I'm cold, I'm wet, I'm miserable. I'm not really enjoying this. This is the last time I ever do anything like this at all. Trust the process, not for me. You see, trust. Trust is a hard thing to master. It's a hard thing to understand. 
We often talk about earning trust. You have to earn someone's trust, and, and I, I agree with that to a large extent, but no matter what we do, we never reach the point where some, we've earned it to the point where someone is obliged to trust us. We can never earn trust, like um, we might have a contract for employment and we work a certain number of hours or fulfil a certain set of duties and then our employer is obliged to pay us. Trust doesn't work like that. We, we, we can earn someone's trust to a certain degree, but not to the degree at which they actually trust us. We can show, them worthy of, we can show ourselves to be worthy of trust, but trust is down to us to give. We're never obliged to trust someone because of what they've done. Trust is something that we can choose to give. Apologies for the small font. I've just realized I, that's not as big as I was hoping it would be. But here we've got Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. This verse will be familiar to many of us, but it reminds us, doesn't it, that we can understand much of the world around us. If we don't understand it, we Google it. But God is so much bigger than Google. God knows what's going on in the world. And what's more, he knows what will go on in the world. He can see beyond the horizon that we are limited by. And so if we trust in the Lord with all our heart and lean not on our own understanding, then we're, we're kind of we're, we're giving to God. And God looks through a lens which sees all the way to the end of time, not just to, to, to the end of the day or, or the end of, end of this service. In 2 Timothy, Paul writes, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love and peace along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So in other words, in order to, in order to trust God, we need to be able to distrust other things. Distrust the things that uh, the evil desires of our youth the things that are going to turn our head away from God. To trust God requires 100% commitment to him. If we only give him 95%, that means that 5% of us is sort of looking the other way. Back in Proverbs, honour the Lord with, with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing and your vats will brim over with new wine. This is why we, why we give. This is why we, 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 we give to the church, whether it be financially or whether it be gifts of time or gifts of prayer or, or whatever we commit. When we commit something to God, we, we know that he blesses us in return. And I've said before, we don't practice a prosperity gospel. It's not give your life to God and everything will be fine, your debts will be paid off and you'll be living, living the life of Riley. It's not, it doesn't work like that, but what we do know what we do know is that God blesses us. And in a world that is focused on, on material blessings, material goodness, actually sometimes God blesses us in, in ways which no one else sees. Ways which sometimes we don't even notice ourselves until time has passed and we look back at the path we've trodden and we can see the way that God has, has brought us along that path and got us through those situations because God blesses us when we trust in him. But it is not easy. 
and it wasn't easy for the disciples. In their mind, going back to Judea meant they were going to be faced with a baying mob. They were scared. But Jesus knew exactly what was coming. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. Now, this is significant. I only found this out when I was was researching for today. In pagan rituals at that time, death was only recognized when a person had been dead for three days. People were were laid in a, a temporary tomb, and there they laid. I'm not sure why. Maybe, maybe there were people who had been knocked unconscious or fallen into a fever or something like that and showed signs of, of being dead, but then the body began to recover. But what we do know is that Jesus arriving when Lazarus had been dead for four days was important because the, the non-Jews in the area, for them, that's evidence of death. There is no question. This is not simply someone falling asleep who's going to wake up. This is someone falling into death. This is someone who is, who is as dead as dead can be. He's been in a tomb for four days. Now, Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews have come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's sort of a double-edged statement, isn't it? It shows tremendous faith. I, I, I believe if you'd been here, Jesus, Lazarus wouldn't have died. But maybe there's also an element of, why weren't you here? You could have, you could have saved him. He's my brother. You, you love him. You love me. Where were you when we needed you? Where, what, what were you doing? If you'd been here, he wouldn't have been in that tomb. Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. Your brother will rise again. Martha says, I know, I know he'll rise again in the resurrection at the last day. She said, I've, I've, I've worked that out. I've, I've got that far. One day, we'll all rise again. Yeah. And Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, even though they die. And whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Do we believe this? When we read these words of Jesus, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do we believe this? Do we believe in the, in the power that Jesus has to resurrect us, to save us? Do we truly believe in the the, the saving grace that we sang about earlier? You see, in this story, if we put ourselves into the shoes of the disciples, or of Mary, or of Martha, or of one of the Jews who came from Jerusalem to comfort them in their mourning, we can understand the challenges We can understand why they wouldn't have believed in Jesus. And we can understand also why Jesus needed to do what he did. Because they faced exactly the same challenges as us. So Jesus 
sees the crowd. Martha calls Mary. Mary comes and joins Jesus. And she has the same, the same statement, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would have died. Well, sorry, would not have died. But when Mary went to see Jesus out on the road, people assumed that she was going to the tomb to mourn. And so a large crowd followed her. And suddenly the large crowd see Jesus. We're not told there was a, a reaction at first. But when, once the crowd have gathered, Jesus says, where have you laid him? And they take him to the tomb. And here we see the human side of Jesus. We see Jesus fully man. We see Jesus, the man who's just lost a friend. Last time he saw him, he was in good health, but since Jesus had traveled, his friend had been struck down and died. And so Jesus stands outside the tomb. And when he sees the tomb, just like you or I seeing the grave of a loved one, Jesus wept. The shortest verse in the Bible, yes. But maybe one of the deepest. Maybe one of the most helpful. Maybe one of the, the, the best verses for enabling us to, to see the humanity of Jesus. Yeah, of course if he'd been there he could have saved Lazarus. Jesus sees death. Jesus knows the pain of death. He knows what it is to mourn someone who he loves so deeply. That's why when, when, we, when we grieve, when we mourn, we can call on Jesus knowing, knowing that he's walked that path ahead of us. He knows what we go through. He knows the pain, the sense of loss. And so when we talk about Jesus joining us and carrying the burden with us, that's not just a nice mental image to bring us a bit of comfort. That's a spiritual reality that Jesus himself equipped himself for so that we can call on him at those times. So Jesus is standing there, weeping outside the tomb, and some of the crowd say, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? <laughs> it's almost like, oh, he did that thing with the bloke who was blind. He sorted his eyes out. Surely he can do this one. It's almost like they're... they're they're looking for the next, the next best miracle, the next best healing. Jesus stands before the tomb, wipes his eyes and says, roll away the stone. But Lord, says Martha, by this time there's going to be a bad odour for he's been in there for four days. Are you sure you want to move? Why on earth? Who in their right mind would do this? The tradition at this time was that when someone died, the body would be put into a tomb, and the, the tombs were kind of um, a, a decent-sized room with six-foot um, apertures in the side. And a body would be taken into the tomb, put into one of these, and left there, wrapped up in, in grave clothes. They'd be left there for a year, by which time the, the flesh and everything would have decomposed, and then the bones were taken and put into a separate burial box, and that was, that was buried. Lazarus 
is just beginning that process of decomposition. Four days, the tomb was sealed to keep the stench in. And they're saying, that's a bit sick. You really want to open it and it's going gonna, it's gonna to be awful. But they took away the stone. Because Jesus said to them, do I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Trust the process. I know it makes no sense to roll away that stone. I know you're thinking it's going to stink. But I'm calling on you. Trust the process. So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. You see, here it is. We, we see why, why it was necessary for Jesus to be away, why he wasn't there healing Lazarus as soon as he had the first, the first sign of illness. This is a moment. This is a, this is a public demonstration of Jesus. He's just shown himself to be fully man, weeping outside the tomb, going through the emotional distress of someone who's lost a loved one. And now we see him fully God, standing there, giving God an opportunity to, to work through him, to show his glory. We see Jesus fully man and then fully God in a very short space of time. And there's a crowd of people to see this. And then Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And suddenly, suddenly Martha must have been thinking, I remember what he said to me, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die. Lazarus was dead. He was dead. He's been in the tomb for four days. And now he's out. Although at this point, of course, I wonder what else was going through their minds. Because at this point, they didn't know for sure it was Lazarus. All they'd seen was this mummified sort of figure coming out. It must have been like from a, a cartoon of ancient Egypt. The, the, the bindings are still wrapped around. Jesus finishes this passage with an instruction. Jesus says to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Last weekend when I was on the XCC, one of the things you're told is, we don't really advertise this and we really want you to invite people along but you mustn't tell them what's going to happen. Which is really difficult to do. And I went in thinking, well no one's told me anything, it's like this big sort of secret club. And I thought, oh, well, that's, you know, that's a bit disappointing. I could plan for it. I could, I could make sure I've got the right gear and, and I could look forward to it. And, but as it is, I'm just turning up hoping that it's going to be all right. By the time I got to the end of the weekend, I was so grateful to all those people that I know who have done the XCC and for not telling me anything about it. Because actually, when I got to the end of the weekend, I'd seen lives changed. I'd seen people being released from all sorts of, of, of echoes of the past or of vices that they were struggling with. People who have been really challenged. It was like, 
it was like there was, there was for some people, the, the stone had been rolled away and they walked out of the tomb. There was, there was things like that. There was, there was grown men in tears. It was powerful. It was impacting. And my prayer is that for them, it's going to be a life-changing moment. It was an amazing ending to, to a, a, an arduous, difficult, tough weekend, but it all came together if you trusted the process. But maybe one of the hardest things to do in this whole passage is take off the grave clothes and let him go. Walking up to someone who people, to all intents and purposes, would have thought it was the living dead. Almost a, some sort of zombie-like figure rising from the grave. But no, it wasn't. This was someone who had been restored to life. And, and to walk up and, and peel away the grave clothes. And oh, it, is, it actually is Lazarus. And, and taking them off. And the grave clothes, I don't, we're not told that they were made pure white. They were probably still in a pretty manky state. And they're, 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 they're pulled away. They're, they're, they're taken off. And Lazarus is revealed. I think that was probably the most grotesque task that anyone was set to do in this passage. Last weekend, I heard some pretty grotesque stories. Some really awful experiences that people have gone through. And it was really powerful, really moving to see the change that the gospel message had brought about in their life. It was a wonderful moment. But it wasn't nice listening to some of, the, some of the testimonies, some of the stories that we heard. It wasn't nice. Because it's not nice, is it? Because we come to church and we don't want to hear about all that, the, the, really, the really unpleasant side of life. But we must make sure that when we share the gospel with people, we are prepared we are prepared to stand in front of what they feel is a sealed tomb. We are prepared to pray and to pray. We are prepared to weep with them, to pour out our, our sorrow. And in that moment, we can feel utterly useless and helpless because we think, I have no idea how you begin to unpick all this, this confusion of threads that I'd love to turn into some beautiful tapestry, but it's just this mess of a bird's nest and I have no idea, I can't help you. And you feel so empty and hopeless, but we trust the process. We never lose sight of the fact that God has the ability to do that. God knows where each one of those strands begins and ends, and he can turn it into something wonderful and beautiful. He can break the seal of that tomb. He can invite someone to walk out. We must not be put off by, by the stench or the sight or the filth or, or the, the, the sin that we come across. Instead, we need to embrace that person and we need to help them to remove the grave clothes and to restore them to the, the wonderful created being that God intended them to be from the word go. This isn't about the death of Lazarus. Jesus himself says that. This sickness will not end in death and it didn't end in death. And you and I do not end in death either because of the changing grace, the love, the transformational salvation of Jesus Christ. One day we will die on this earth. Make no mistake. But if we follow Jesus, that is not the end. 
because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. If we believe in him, we will live forever in the kingdom of God. As I left the Brecon Beacons last week, I felt really sad it was over. I felt really sad because I wanted to relive the whole thing. Given the chance, I would have been back up there this week. Not that it's running, but there's another one in Dartmoor in November, if anybody fancies it. But it was a transformational experience. It was powerful, it was interesting, it was hard, it was challenging. But compared to living a life following Jesus, it was a doddle. You see, all of us, as we follow Jesus, following Jesus is in itself an extreme character challenge. It is not the easy path. It is not the easy way out. But if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, you haven't made that decision to follow Jesus, then then I, I urge you, I encourage you to at least give Jesus a chance. It'll be the best decision that you ever make. This week, if you're confronted with a Lazarus or confronted with a sealed tomb, someone who simply refuses to to accept that there is a God who loves them, trust the process. God created them. God knows them and God loves them. And God's chosen you to make the difference in their lives. Trust the process. Trust in God. Trust yourself. Let's pray. Father God, we we thank you for this story of Lazarus. And we thank you, Father, that we learn so much through Jesus. Every time we we read something of the life of Jesus, we learn so much. Father, we thank you that Jesus still teaches today just just as he did when he walked on this earth. And Father, we thank you that as we as we live through our lives, we are not living abandoned, lonely, empty lives. Instead, we are living in the presence of your Holy Spirit. We thank you, Father, that you are in every conversation that we have, that you are in every situation that we are faced with. And Lord, in those times when things seem desperate, when things seem so hard, when there doesn't seem to be any, any way out, we feel like rats in a trap. Father, help us to trust the process, to trust in you, and remember that you have a plan for each of us, a plan to prosper, So, Father God, we pray that as we go out into this world, whatever we are faced with, you will bless us with the wisdom to deal with the situation. You will bless us with the the faith to give ourselves to you. You'll bless us with the the peace to be the non-anxious presence when all around us are losing their heads. And, Father, we pray that you will guide us so that not only do we stay on the path that you've planned for us, but we can direct others onto the path that you've planned for them. In Jesus' name, amen.
I'd like to invite you to stand, please. <laughs>